Before we get into the episode, we want to let you know we are gathering another Attaching to God learning cohort. In it, you will escape your anxious jungles and avoiding deserts of faith and grow into secure attachment with God and with others. This is a one-of-a-kind six-week cohort combining recorded teachings and live cohort calls. So you can get all the details at embodiedfaith.life slash learning dash cohorts or see the show notes for details after the description. Welcome again to the Embodied Faith Podcast. I am Jeff Holsklaw, and we're seeking to integrate neuroscience, spiritual formation, and faith. As always, this is brought to you by Grassroots Christianity, which is growing faith for everyday people. Many of us spend our days feeling like we have all the problems and everyone else has their act together. We feel like we aren't achieving what we're supposed to. We're not living up to our potential. But what if a higher self-esteem is not the answer? What if maybe that's the problem? What if a lower anthropology could save the day? That's what we're talking about today, how a low anthropology might actually be better for us. I'm really excited to have David Zoll on today on the Embodied Faith Podcast. He is the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, the co-host of The Mocking Cast. He is also the author of Seculosity, subtitled How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Become Our New Religion and What to Do About It. Uh, and thankfully, his next book, which we're talking about today, Low Anthropology, has a much shorter subtitle. But <laughs> David, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm so glad to be here, Jeff. It's great to hear your voice and uh, rattling off that ex- <laughs> excessively long subtitle. You did a great job with it. I'm sure that was your publisher's idea. You had nothing to do with it. It actually was. I was like, they're like, if, if you're going to use a neologism to title this book, we've got to tell people what that's it's true. About. That's true. Yeah. Well, good. Okay, so so let's cut to the chase. I was raised in California. I was raised in California in the 80s and 90s. When the self-esteem movement was just at peak self-esteem, they were the best at self-esteem. I didn't learn much in school. I don't know how to spell, but I feel really good about that. And I'm very confident when I misspell things. And so reading your book, you seem to want to take that all away from me. And I want to know why. Why do you want to take my high self-esteem away from me and catapult me in the despairs of a low anthropology? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, first of all, I don't. I want you to feel great about yourself because uh, I, you know, the, the book is 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 not um, it's not a vehicle for self loathing. I really think the opposite is true. But the uh, there was an article, okay, uh, about I don't know, maybe eight or nine years ago, that was in the Atlantic Monthly. It was a huge article. It actually got turned into a book or something of a book called "How to Land Your Kid in Therapy." It was Lori Gottlieb wrote it, and it was about, uh, she said that she saw, she had seen a generation of young people enter her office with um, board, basically having had a nervous breakdown in the mid-20s because they had been, had been so sheltered from any experience of failure or any experience of their own lack, and they'd been told so aggressively that they were, uh, you know, super special and there was nothing wrong with them and the they only limitations they had were the ones they put on themselves and parents had out of love I think tried to spin every setback as an actual victory 
And they're, they'd never been allowed to experience any negativity, in other words. And she said that what she saw in these people was that they felt that they'd I had been lied to. Mm. But mainly they felt that they were, uh, they were struggling with a, acute a perfectionism. And uh, the, the fallout of that was sort of a sense of uh, existential loneliness. They were the only ones who, who were screwed up. All of their peers had it together. Uh, if anyone found out how much they were really just stitching it together, they would be, uh, they lived in fear of that, that sort of imposter syndrome. And so uh, and I found that to be true of my own peers. I, I grew up in the same setting of what, uh, you know, under the rubric of high self-esteem, what was very often communicated. And I want to say that I, all of this, that sort of approach was done out of, I feel it was done out of a love and who wants their kid to feel badly about sure, themselves. Of course. But it, it had a way of creating a neurosis um, around uh, or what, what today is basically called entitlement. Like that I think that I am deserving of everything good and that there is uh, I'm God's gift to the world. Uh, and well, while also a splitting because you, you're leading another life, uh, which there's the real you and then there's the public you and, and all sorts of things. So that woke me up. That article woke me up to realizing, oh, my gosh, this isn't some niche thing that I that I'm dealing with in terms of like privileged kids on the East yeah. Coast. But it's more of a, a larger uh, fallout from um, that kind of sunny optimism or at least uh, almost a, a militaristic defense against uh, anything sad, uh, bad or mad <laughs> <laughs> which are like the three of the five core uh emotions well just so that you don't feel too sad mad or bad i just want you to know that right away you know josh redder jumped in and said that he loves you and so so if that positivity could just carry through to the rest of this interview that would be great well, i so, love him too I think I remember reading that same article, which was something like there's no greater burden than the burden of, um, of finding your happiness where parents would tell uh, children about career choices and college choices and romantic, like just do what makes you happy, which is sounds so positive and affirming, right? You want your children to be happy, but it's, it's vague and it, it feels like a, a crushing weight. Well, am I happy? Am I doing what makes me happy is, well, if I made a change, would that make me more happy or less? Happy? And then just becomes this huge, uh, because the idea is that you should be happy. And if you're not happy, then something is wrong. I don't know if that's the same article. I think it was. No, no, but it's your fault. You, you are to blame. Yeah. You, yeah. And so that is, that becomes the accidental secondary message of what you're calling a high anthropology. So could you just unpack a little bit what you mean by a high anthropology? Yeah, sure. The uh, anthropology, I'm not using it like a cultural anthropologist would um, or a <laughs> someone shopping for you know, boho chic, uh, <laughs> housewares. Uh, it's not about, uh, you know, the study of small, you know, um, tribes in the tundra or something like that. Uh, I'm talking about anthropology is the way philosophers and theologians use it, which is simply, uh, what do you mean? What's your operating view of human nature? What do you, what do you mean when you use the phrase, I'm only human? That is your anthropology. What do you think human beings are good at? What are they not good at? What are they capable of? What are they incapable of? So a high anthropology is basically the default in at least the culture in which I was raised. I can't speak for everyone because I recognize, especially people from 
religious backgrounds grow up in a in a much more negative um, uh, view or a, a, a kind of a, a wagging finger. But the uh, the high anthropology would say that yes, the only limits that, uh, that you face are the ones that you put on yourself that uh, you are defined by your greatest achievements, that you can sort of do it all and be it all. And, and a lot of times these messages aren't overt, but that's the, that is the, that is the, uh, the implicit message that you can, you, that you are capable of a great deal. Now, one of the ways you know you're living in a culture of high anthropology is, is I th- and, and, and in fact, this book was born out of this observation. And in fact, my own, Suffering. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm. We're all sort of high anthropologists by nature, I think. Uh, but it was, it was the, the the combination of burnout, which is this. At this point, it's almost like a hackneyed idea. But everyone, for at least a few years there before the pandemic and during the pandemic, everyone was talking about burnout. Today, it's more like fatigue. But uh, this widespread sense that we were living lives that demanded more than uh, of us than we were capable of delivering. And that had to do with our, uh, economically, our, our, our jobs. It had to do with our relationships. Uh, it had to do with our, simply our time. And uh, it's spiritually too, I think there's, so you'd hear about, you know, middle schoolers being burned out and you would hear about young mothers being burned out and you would hear about, you know, men in their fifties being burned out and everyone was sort of burned out. And it was not just, they were exhausted. They were sort of paralyzed or, or, or put upon um, feeling sort of betrayed almost uh, that they were told that they could do something they were physically incapable of doing. Uh so that's burnout is one of the cultural conditions that I was addressing. And the other one would be loneliness, which is often generated by this never allowing yourself to be known. You know, that's what people yeah. who are lonely, uh, there's an intolerance of weakness. And, and so you'd see, you saw these books that would come out, lots of books about the power of vulnerability. And I'm talking about Brene Brown, but other people would piggyback on this. And I generally think those are really pretty good. That's a good development. Um, but there was there was a there was a sort of an out a cry of the heart that I'm under so much demand of uh, the, the burden of perfectionism is too much and in order to forge real relationships in order to feel known we must be open not about the best things about us but what we struggle with what we what we fail at and what we are uh, you know um, <clears throat> where we fall short and that's where known what's where you feel known and that's where you feel loved and so loneliness burnout are symptomatic of a high anthropology that says show no weakness and keep grinding and uh, no, no, no rest for the weary. Yeah. So the way you're using it, a high anthropology sounds like some condemnation combination of like pipe pop psychology and affirmation, self-help literature, uh, corporate productivity culture um, and effectiveness. And then kind of the sense that, well, your life is, is um, up to you and how yeah. it turns out is your responsibility, which really does come from certain streams of like positive psychology and other things like you, you are the captain of your own life. Right. Um, and so that sounds good on the one hand, but you're kind of noticing and we're as a culture saying, well, actually look at all these symptoms um, that, that a lifetime of that message uh, creates where we're, pushing our physical limitations. We're expecting so much of ourselves and others and these types of things. So what are, so 
uh, because I come from like fundamentalism and I'm in conversations with people coming out of fundamentalism and, you know, they would say, well, I had a low anthropology and it was receiving um, a more positive view of myself uh, that actually saved and helped me uh, move out of that. Uh, which I think in a certain circles uh, is true, you know, and if you were raised in a really uh, traumatic or abusive um, environment, that is, you know, that's terrible. And it is true that building your self-esteem or under, having a higher view of yourself is the work of self-care and of development. But broadly, I think what I hear you saying broadly as a culture, you know, we're built to have a high anthropology like that's like the, the marketing the corporate you know that's the messages we're getting all the time right yeah that's i mean this is a this is one of the tensions in the book and i try to talk about it in a lot of different ways but there is very much a way in which low anthropology which is sort of the sense that you are a limited creature you're not you're there's god and you're not god uh and uh, there uh, that you're limited and that you're conflicted. You have are tied in all sorts of knots and you're an emotional creature. This is all founded on social science. You know, you don't need a theology degree to know this and that there is a dark side to human nature. There is what I would, I would, it would call original sin in this case. I would call the, the I still call it self-centeredness, but if you don't have some appreciation of there being an actual dark of my child, occasionally just wanting to inflict pain, um, you're going to be baffled and disappointed and actually resentful of people. So that said, um, there are those who grew up in a, uh, what I would call a not low enough anthropology that said, you are um, terrible. Now stop it. You are awful and you are a worm and now stop it. So it's a, it's, it's a, as a Christian, you somehow have the power within yourself to not be so limited, to not be so self-centered and to not be um, uh, so conflicted. And that create, that pits a person against themselves and creates enormous amounts of shame and self-loathing. The, one of the key lines in the beginning of the book is it is not shame inducing and defeating to say that I cannot do it all, be it all, care about it all. Um, and and always do exactly what I'm told. What is shame-inducing and defeating is the idea that I can, I just haven't pulled it off yet. And I think that was the that's the great twist that I think is really important. Is that um, certainly you and I we were engaged in pastoral ministry as well as you know theology and academic and psychology and all these things. Like we don't want people to be filled with shame, and we don't want people to be self-loathing. So no. that so we'll just agree with that baseline. Hmm. Uh, but what you're trying to say is, well, the best psychology and maybe even you know theology uh, knows that we have a low anthropology or, or knows that we're you know we're just people, uh, and that actually it's a high anthropology that is most shame inducing, uh, hmm. and that it's high it's a high expectation kind of environment that be, creates the the most self-loathing even um on, in general uh, and so and i think that that's really that's something we need as a society to, um to grapple with as we as we kind of think through through these things so what is the shape of a low you in section two or part two of your book you talk about the shape of low anthropology so what is the shape you just mentioned rattled off a couple of those three things but what why is accepting limitations good for us and an example of a low anthropology uh, yeah. Uh, oh, and by the way, if people who did grow up in that 
fundamentalist sort of absolute no, that, that kind of condemnatory situation, I do think it can be very therapeutic and helpful to be reminded that they're created in God's image and that they're, they have something positive to contribute. And like that is earth shattering to people who are, who have, have somehow gotten in their head that they don't. It's, it's, it's more, I'm, I'm talking, I, there's a slight cultural specificity here where I'm talking about those of us who think I'm the only one with problems. I'm the only one who struggles. Like that's what a high anthropology inculcates in people. The shape of a low anthropology. So people sometimes say, or is this just a euphemism for total depravity or original sin? And that's, it's right. not, it includes a notion of sin. Total depravity, I think, by the way, uh, just linguistically is completely degraded. I don't think it can it, – it makes no sense, like, in terms of it only comes across as you suck. Like, that's – that's I, I, I've stopped trying to – and I'm not a Calvinist, so I also don't feel any any kind of a, uh, ownership of that title. It, it has done a, a ton of damage. Um, so a low anthropology has three pillars as I see it. And the first one is limitation which is this idea that we have, we are limited uh, by what we can do and uh, by what we can know. So we are limited by things like time. You cannot be in two places at once as anyone who's got kids knows. And we are limited by biology. Like we've got bodies that need sleep, you know, that need food. There's a simple sense in which there are firm limits on what we are capable of. But there's also uh, epistemological modesty, what I, or what I would say, like that uh, we're high anthropology world is, is the world of certainty. And I have complete mastery and comprehensive knowledge of, of X, Y, and Z. Uh, low anthropology is actually that, that you cannot um, have full comprehensive knowledge of anything like that. Just by nature of your limit, your context um, and your perspective there's always some, you may have 99.9% of the facts, but you, there's, there's always the possibility that you don't have all of them. And again, there is a God and it's not you. So uh, there's a modesty about uh, what we can know. That's, that's limitation. And I think that, I mean, what does that look like in practice? It means I can, I can, uh, I think sometimes it means the difference between taking up arms and not, not, not violence and no violence. If I'm a hundred percent certain I'm right about something, and I'm 100% certain you're wrong about something. Well, then what excuse is there for me not to employ every means at my disposal to prevent you? A low anthropology says there might still be something I can learn from you. Uh, even, if I, even, if I, even if I don't think so, I have to know uh, epistemologically or that, that, that I am going to be limited in what I'm – it doesn't mean I can't feel strongly or almost certain about things. But could it cut – one to one percent out of my certainty off would would not be a bad thing. Um, limitation is is simply the idea that I uh, it's it's okay to be a person with limits. Like that's uh, that, that me needing sleep or getting sick occasionally is not evidence of some sort of exceptional weakness on my part. It's just sort of uh, proof that I'm a human being. So that is uh, the first pillar. The second pillar is what I call doubleness, and this is the um, that that. Our lives, we, we're not just limited uh, in terms of capacity, but agency. So uh, it's the Romans 7 or the inside out experience of reality that anyone who's struggled with addiction knows all too well. That people are emotional creatures and that we're not, we, 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 we are intellectual creatures as well, but that's secondary, if, uh, which means um, we're a jumble of feelings and uh, there's competing forces that uh, are at work within us such that we don't always understand ourselves 
we are a mystery to ourselves and that telling there's uh, misbehavior is not always a uh, matter of information or education that misbehavior is usually a matter. It has to do with desire. And this is an Augustinian attempt at, at the, if you want to know, if you want to understand someone, figure out what they love, figure out what they want. Um, and that's, that's the key to understanding people. But it, it means in practice that we can be very uh, complicated and it doesn't mean that we always want to do the wrong thing, though. In, yes, it it does mean that, and it also it does. Uh, um, it means I'm not as free as I think I am. That I'm constrained. I mean, if you're if you're sort of a social progressive, you can think about it in terms. Of I'm constrained by society and my circumstances and biases and all of these things. Uh, but there's some sort of I'm not just a free agent making healthy choices. And I think that's a uh, absolute uh, key to understanding other people and not completely batting your head against the wall when you told them. And as a person in ministry, like I've told them what they need to do. <laughs> I've, I've spelled it out clearly. Why won't they do it? Because um, that they, always works. Yeah, Because that always works. It doesn't work. So that's doubleness or conflictedness. And thirdly is self-centeredness, which is a sin uh, or is my euphemism for that. There is something about us that such that the things that we do desire often come at a cost to other people mm-hmm. and our, and even ourselves and that our best interests are not always the, that, that somehow our desires are disordered. Um, and there is a moral component to this, which is unavoidable. And I guess it's unfashionable and, and it's where a lot of the books about vulnerability and limitations stop. But uh, until, um, I don't. I don't think you're. We're capable of loving or understanding other people unless we assume, unless we understand that there is also this what I would call bias against flourishing, um, Mm -hmm. that seems to afflict us. Even those of us who've been set free from the 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 the, the weaponized versions of low anthropology, we still uh, we we still sometimes just want to do something because it's we want to do it, you know, and and. and to hell with what other people think, you know? So that's, uh, we see that playing out collectively all in all sorts of ways. Yeah. My, uh, my siblings were always like when Jeffrey was, uh, you know, when he was six, he would get that look and we just knew he was about to destroy all the stuff we'd spend an hour building. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It's like, I don't know. Like, why did I do that? I don't know. Was I listening to the demons inside of me? Was I, you know, giving into some primal urges? You know, I don't know. The the perverse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you just explained, you know, a lot of the reasons why this podcast is called Embodied Faith is because um, our bodies create limitations. So you were talking about, you know, there's food limitations, there's uh, sleep limitations, there's just extended in space and time limitations. Um, You know, I I can't jump really high, so I have basketball limitations. I can't just wish wish those away, you know. Um, So, so. Our culture, uh, technologically speaking, um, and kind of our corporate and kind of, you know, marketing consumption world basically is live without limitations. You know, you have light bulbs, you have music, you can stay up all night. You don't have to sleep. Just keep going. Right. We have, you know, we have all sorts of remedies. I have coffee, like you drink, you know, we we can do all this. We, we, we can make it all happen. Right. And so we, our, our Western world, especially technological world says you can live without limitations, you know, and you're saying, well, actually that's a high anthropology kind of view. A low anthropology says we need to accept our limitations. Mm. Uh, and then similarly, um, 
you know, we're embodied. So we have like this churning emotional life that is just undeniable. Uh, and you know, like, I think that's what you're saying is partly why I think, um, at least in my circles, like internal family systems, parts theory is just taking off, um, therapeutically as well as kind of popularly is because people are grappling with like, yeah, I have conflicted motivations. I have different parts of me. I want to go out. No, I want to stay home. I want to chew my boss's head off. No, I'd rather not because I want my promotion, right? We have different parts that are at war and I think a low anthropology is always taking that seriously. Like you're not, you know, the goal isn't to live your best self now, best life now. It's just to kind of live, you know, let's just live and let's be honest, you know? So anyhow, I think that you're just kind of explaining, I'm just kind of linking, you know, what you're doing with the title of this podcast. So um, how, how then just to kind of start wrapping up. So is there any good news in all this? Like, how do we, how do we move forward? Like, how is this good for us? You've mentioned uh, living with yourself, relationships, religion, and politics. Um, you don't have to go over all that. Like, we could maybe just like end with the last one. Like, what's how does a low anthropology help our relationship to our own selves, and then maybe like our relationships? Well, I think a low anthropology is, 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 is approaches the self with a little with a healthy self suspicion, not a self condemnation, but a sort of a um, I I can Humility. contain. I, humility. I can contain multitudes, and it's it's uh, this this very anxious search for the authentic self uh, can take on, at least in my own experience and uh, the lives of other people, can take on a very uh, oppressive um, uh, color. And uh, low anthropology sort of says um, y- you're not just strictly one thing or the other, and like that's okay. And you you are wonderful in a lot of ways, and in a lot of ways, in which you're a complete basket case, and like that's. Uh, to, to have any kind of healthy relationship with yourself, both of those, uh, neither of those could be sort of legislated against. Um, while also not being, I think, I think uh, the great fruit of low anthropology is unity. Like I understand that we are not, perhaps we don't agree on certain virtues. Uh, we have different values, but I can know at the, I can love you the second I realize that like me, you fall short of your values. Like you don't always live up to them. That's like bridge is, 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 is weakness or, or loss. You know, I, by the fact that we're both getting older, we both have lost things and they're all of a sudden sympathies like that. So there's a great fruit of love and sympathy and unity, empathy. And ultimately though, uh, and I'd go through other things, curiosity, you know, there's always something more to learn. Um, I think faith is the great fruit of low anthropology that I, that I need help of, I need help from other people. So it's an invitation to collaboration and friendship and community, but I also need help. Ultimately I need help from God. Such is my predicament that I need help from God. I need deliverance. uh, I need redemption and I need sustenance from, from God. And and that, that, that uh, I don't think Christianity makes a huge amount of sense without in the context of a high anthropology, but in terms of a low anthropology, you get into communities of faith or like think of AA where people who are, um, are, those are transformative communities and they're other centered serving service communities that begin with the low anthropology. You do not move beyond your, your sort of basic uh, identity as an alcoholic. And like, and yet we watch as people 
all sorts of amazing things happen. And we reach out to other people in, in, in solidarity and we kind of start to dwell on ourselves a little less. And that's the roadmap to freedom. And, but ultimately I, I'm, I'm trying to paint a picture uh, that, that uh, I'm trying to make a case for why faith in God would be not just compelling, but urgent. Uh, and if you're a person who has the answers or who only needs a, a slap on the back or a pat on the back occasionally, like why, why, why look to God? But if you're a person who is tied in knots and sometimes d- does the wrong thing just for the thrill of it and, some t- and, 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 and is dealing with inherited biases and conditions that, that, that not, are not neutral, that like hurt people socially, but also hurt, you know, the depression that I feel my wife and kids have to deal with it. I mean, you can empathize with me, but like, who's going to, f- you know, go out and get groceries. So it's a, I, I, I really see this as the gateway, not in and of itself, like a, 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 a low anthropology without some sense of, of God, I, I believe can lead to nihilism, not cynicism. Cynicism is sort of a certainty about other people, whereas low anthropology says, actually, I can never be completely certain about my spouse or my child or myself. But I, th- I believe that it, it ultimately is, is, is the beginning I, I say a low anthropology produces a high christology uh, uh or the, uh, and the great saints of of history are sort of view themselves as more dependent and smaller and god is larger i, th- I found it to be very good news as i age and many of my um own capabilities and capacities just diminished by nature of my body decaying <laughs> so sorry i'm preaching but. oh no that's great well that's what i kind of wanted to end with is how how does how do we cultivate like communities of a low anthropology, not loathsome, shame-filled communities? Because uh, usually those are ones that are expecting the most, uh, expecting perfectionism, you know, wrapped in the the verbiage of holiness or purity or something like that, or the perfect, you know, charismatic experience or something like that. But how can we? What what do churches of a low anthropology uh, look like? Um, it seems like they, you know, confession and repentance is pretty basic, right? That's just your declaring out loud your own limitations, failures, your own veering away from the ideals that we hold to be, you know, important for us. Uh, and then, you know, the embrace of that, right? Yeah, I think a great church service is a great church uh, embraces the technologies of the heart, you know, which are music is a technology of the heart. Storytelling is a technology of the heart, but liturgy at its best you come into my church, at least you hear about God from whom no secrets are hid, all desires known. You're like, Oh really? And then you get to the confession where you talk about the things we've done and left undone. And we've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And then in light of that reality, um, you are told that God loves you and that you're forgiven on account of his son. and, And you're invited to the table to receive. Now, Everyone has a different tradition and different liturgies, but I think that basic rhythm is a beautiful one because at the end, after you've received forgiveness, absolution, uh, communion, all on the same level, we're all on our knees, then you're sent out into the world to do the good works God has prepared in advance for you to do. Sort of like the, the world becomes a surprise party. You start to look at, you look, start to look at, you're like, wow, given what I'm like, given what other people are like. How amazing is it that so many wonderful things are on offer and here's a place where I can serve another person or here's a place where um, look at these acts of beauty and, and kindness. Um, what it, it, it's a difference between approaching the world uh, resentful for it, not 
living up to your expectations versus it's uh, grateful and in awe and wonder at the majesty of the surprise of God's grace. Mm. And so in that sense, like a worship service or just a, a community, like you say, that take, you know, if we want to use the theology that takes sin, you know, seriously or the sin situation or a low anthropologist, the limitations of humanity, it actually creates more spontaneous moments of awe and wonder and appreciation for the world, for others, uh, whether that's just empathy for others' weaknesses, but then also for their achievements. Oh, like, that's so amazing where you came from and that you were able to accomplish all these things or wow, like you're doing so great today. This is a good day for you. And just being able to celebrate uh, all these things, it sounds counterintuitive that the lower we view ourselves and others actually creates the more joy and wonder in our interactions. Yeah. God has given people different gifts. It is given us very similar weaknesses, but uh, the different gifts and you can sort of sit around and, and say, wow, I can't do that. Here's my 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 blind spot. Collaboration becomes all of a sudden like a a key to Christian living, and you can't do it alone. And and yeah, you start to just be in awe of this tapestry that's around you, and while also not being surprised when things go south or when 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 the when when the, there's a glitch uh, or the, the 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 processor throws up an error. So. I believe it's it's not it's a it's a wonderful um, way to also not take yourself totally seriously, uh, and still think that God is in the is in the business of sort of redeeming people and communities and yeah all that stuff. Well, and I I think it's just striking um, in the season two of this podcast we did a lot on trauma and I had someone where we just talked about uh, you know Jesus you know the man of trauma you know from. Uh, mm. was it, Isaiah 53, you know, usually it's the, the man of sorrows, right? Uh, but the man of trauma, and, you know, it's unique that, you know, we as Christians follow the, the weak, the vulnerable hero or the, you know, the savior who dies. Mm. Uh, and that that, you know, is a way of receiving back our own low anthropology. But then, you know, the, the great reversal is, well, then we get all of the divinity, in, in the midst of that, and that the divinity is the linking of these two things. And, yeah, I would say, Jeff, I think that the Holy Spirit is is, is alive and active, and and like without uh, that peace, you are you can be thrown onto a sort of a, uh, a darker view. But I, 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 as a Christian, I just don't do. I, I always have. There's always hope. You know? Amen. And uh, and you see that you see that in in you know as much grief as the church gets, and rightly so. If you've ever been a part of a, a church that really does preach the grace of God over and over and over again, by the way, I think that it's not a one-time thing. It's a every, every day, every week Amen. thing um, and we, we're, in which people are leading from their weakness and there's transparency and there's forgiveness. I think that's the most beautiful, you know, glimpse of the kingdom you can receive. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again so much for, pulling some of these things together, pulling together, you know, this cultural view as well as, you know, the best of these psychology, psychological approaches. Um, please check out David's book, Low Anthropology. Where can people find you? Where are you up to, you know, on our screens of distraction that you know, shatter <laughs> our ability to embrace our limitations? Yeah. Jeez. Uh, you can find me on Mockingbird, which is mbird.com. And also uh, I host the Mockingcast, which is on Apple and uh, you know Spotify and all the places where podcasts are. I'm, I'm doing a book tour right now. I'm, I'm going to be in Texas 
uh, over the sort of Halloween weekend. Um, I'll be back in time for Halloween if you're my children and you're listening. <laughs> and then I'll be in Minneapolis in the middle of November. So there, that all that you can find ember.com backslash low anthropology. You can find out where I'm going to tour the book. But. Excellent. Well, thanks so much. And for all of you who are listening or watching this, uh, you can please like and subscribe, follow on the YouTube channel, which is uh, my full name, Jeffrey Holzglaw. Uh, otherwise, you can search uh, Embodied Faith Podcast. It'll pop right up. Um, please follow along. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, let's do this again. Love to. 